Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Ian Doyle, the host of The Making of a Detective, a new true crime series that looks at five of Ireland's most notorious murder cases. What makes it special, though, is that these stories are told by the man who once solved them, ex-detective inspector Pat Murray. His own journey, climbing the ranks of the Irish police force, is as interesting as they come, and the cases he led are still talked about widely today. We want to give you a preview of the series. Episode 1, the one you're listening to right now, looks at the 2004 murder of Rachel Cowley, a 30-year-old mother of two from North Dublin, As Pat guides us through his investigation, we also chat to Rachel's family and those closest to the case. You can find all four episodes covering Rachel Callaly's murder by searching The Making of Detective in your podcast app now. The Making of a Detective contains descriptions of violence and graphic content and is not suitable for everyone. Well, I said whoever killed this woman hated her. Because I said there was a viciousness about the assault. Where where the murder happened was in the bedroom, which is the very last room of the house. It's not a place I go to. Um, I I, I tend not to think too much about it. It was a, a violent robbery. Why go to the extreme of murdering the person? Walking by the hall, like, you know... What's down, just like you're talking six or eight foot away on the floor. We just feel it's someone she would have known or someone she could have identified. It's, it's just, it's not a, it, it doesn't, it's not a nice place to, to, to dwell in. So I, I tend not to. Welcome to the making of a detective. The Cases of Pat Murray, brought to you by the Irish Sun. I'm your host, Ian Doyle, and over the next five weeks, I'll be telling the story of five of Ireland's most notorious murder cases, and the man who once solved them. This story, Pat's story, spans three decades, stretching all over Ireland, and even abroad. From Navan to Majorca to New York City, follow along as we share the dramatic details of each case. And how they shaped Pat into one of Ireland's greatest detectives. Helping to tell these stories, I'll be joined for analysis by crime editor Stephen Breen, who's written extensively on these cases in the Irish Sun. Long curly hair and thin in stature, Pat Murray was just a boy on his first failed attempt to join the Gardaí. There was a Sergeant MacPhillips there, and I looked for an application for him and he took me into his office and he was a big cut of a man, a big strong chest on him, a big man. And he grabbed me by the shoulder and he shook me and he says, uh, you're too young anyway. That's firstly, he says, and number two, he says, you're too skinny. You want to go and put a bit of meat on your bones, like, you know, come back when you're 18 or whatever. Growing up, 
Pat Murray always wanted to be a guard. It was something he'd fantasise about over and over again as a child. Needless to say, Sergeant McPhillip's aversion to him joining the force was a bit of a setback. After being refused from the force, Pat spent a number of years working in Navan Carpets and Union Camp, which was a packaging and manufacturing plant. It wasn't the excitement he had once dreamed of, but it was a living. Then, seven years later, Pat got a second chance. The Guardi were looking for new recruits, and this time, Sergeant McPhillips wasn't there to object. So I was delighted, I was over the moon, like this was a big thing now, going to Temple Moor, like to train. I remember uh, it was the 14th of August 1985, and my father and mother drove me down with my aunt to the gates of Temple Moor. Pat's parents had to leave him at the gates and say goodbye for now. As much as he wanted to be a guard, his first impressions of the college were mixed. We got not as much a talk but a shouting at by uh, some sergeant. I guess that was his function in life to try and rattle us. Now we'll make men out of you and now if your mammy's behind and all this type of jazz. I remember he was shouting so much and he, he was shouting at one fellow. He says, no, I'll make a man out of you. The poor guy, I remember him, collapsed. He fainted on, on the ground like, you know. Over the next six months, Pat progressed in Templemore. Not necessarily excelling, but certainly getting by. But it was clear the Gardaí and its rather archaic training regime wasn't for everyone. Two of the guys now had nervous breakdowns down there because of, I think, the pressure of studying got to them. Plus, there was a degree of bullying and that type of carry-on by classmates that went on. And it's a sad reflection, a sad thing to see, like, you know. After all the years of wanting and wishing, Pat's first real experience in the field was underwhelming, if not concerning. He was stationed at Donnybrook Garda Station, where his main duty was guarding the British Embassy. We passed out in January 1986, and some of those guys I haven't seen since. There was no glory in it, you're standing outside an embassy. People with any little bit of pull or they were being looked after or their families were well in, got more cushy stations. And I know one guy <laughs> got a station, his family home backed onto the back of the station. So like, that's what you were dealing with, like, you know. But look, I was sent to Donny Brooks, nothing I could do about it, and that was it. If your shift was to go in and stand outside the British Embassy and walk, let's say, 20 yards back and forth and stand there like a cardboard cutout, you get a bit disheartened. And I did get disheartened because I was thinking about the job that I was doing and that I had liked. I remember one night, like so fed up, like at four o'clock in the morning, there wasn't a sinner around, there was nothing, there wasn't even a fox, there was nothing. And I went out and I lay in the middle of the road and I looked up at the sky and I spread myself out like a crucifix, like, and I was just looking up at the sky and I said, there has to be more to life than this. I remember doing that, like, you know, and I said to myself, what are you at? It was sort of a, a development of how I was feeling inside, like. On the verge of quitting the guards, Pat asked himself the same question each night. Did I make the right choice? But uh, I put in for a transfer. A transfer is what Pat got. Posted to Blanchardstown Garda Station, Pat would be entering the field again. But this time for real. This was the moment Pat Murray's career, and in many ways life, took off. Pat was born to be a guard. Like he's just a guard. Like even though he's retired now, Pat is just a guard. So 
he's just a hundred percent, thousand percent professional. Um, he makes no apologies for it. That's the voice of Paul Cowley, a man Pat would get to know very well while working on the case that's the focus of this episode. The murder in question shocked the country to its core and is still remembered today. Few deaths in Ireland have been as high profile or had as many twists and turns as the murder of Rachel Cowley and the public circus that followed. We'll return to Pat's time at Blanchardstown Garda Station in a later episode, but for now, let's jump forward to 2004, the year of Rachel Callaly's death, when Pat was working in Balbriggan Garda Station under a new title, Detective Sergeant Pat Murray. I worked there with a couple of detectives and plainclothes members, and Balbriggan District covered Garristown, Skerries, Rush and Lusk, which was a big area, a big country area too, and the biggish towns. So there was plenty of crime, there was plenty to do, and uh, I took up trying to solve a lot of these crimes. Robberies and burglaries were the main stay of the crime in Balbriggan district. We had no murders there in years or anything. In the 17 years since graduating from Templemore College, Pat's career had progressed leaps and bounds. He worked on some high-profile cases, but few were as impactful as this. This season, on the making of a detective. For the next month, every house we went into, where there was a woman of a certain age, they all said to us, and God love me dad, he was only coming round, they all said it, he did it, he did it, he did it. Before he left the station, he turned around to me, put his thumb up and he said, I see a pat like, you know, as if to say, F you, you can't get me. In April 1997, Rachel Callaly, a bright young fair-haired legal secretary from Dublin, married Joe O'Reilly, a computer operations manager, one year her senior. Joe came from a broken home. His parents had separated when he was younger, and his father moved to the UK, where he didn't get to see him as often as he'd have liked. Joe's best man at the wedding was his brother Derek, and Rachel's bridesmaid was her loyal and devoted best friend, Jackie Connor. As one of five adopted children, Rachel's family unit wouldn't have been seen as a conventional one, but her parents, Rose and Jim, nurtured a house that was full of love for their children, something that's evident to this day. Paul, Rachel's older brother, describes his memories of her growing up. She was full of life. You know, she was born to live, rather. You know, some people, it takes them a while to get going in life. Like, from day one, Rachel was just... She was just like a rocket, you know, she just took off and there was no obstacles in life for her. If she came up against something, she would just get over it. She'd work away around it, do something, but she'd get over it. As a happily married couple, Rachel and Joe had two young boys, Luke and Adam, and moved from their home in Santry to a bungalow in Baldara, the Knoll, County Dublin about 20 kilometres south of Detective Mary's new posting. No matter where Rach went, the two kids were always with her, so she brought them everywhere with her. They were two very happy kids, so I think she was born to be a mother. Like The kids were never in her way, you know. She, she would fit her life around what the two kids needed. She just loved them being part of her, and she loved being in their lives, and she loved them being in her life. According to Paul, 
Rachel was someone you'd remember for the everyday type of interactions. She'd come into the gas, she'd give you a hug, and she was always positive, always happy. She just, she had a nice way about her, you know. Life never kind of got her down. Now, and I'm sure it did, but we never got to see a lot of that. Like, she always had a sunny side out, sort of. And, and it would sort of rub off on you. Like, when you'd meet her, you'd, you'd feel better afterwards. Rachel and Joe lived an ordinary enough life. They had a small but close circle of mutual friends. Both were really into their sport, namely softball, in which the pair played together and individually, meeting plenty of friends along the way. Joe began working for Viacom, an outdoor advertising firm, and to try and bring in some extra household cash, Rachel got a job as a Tupperware and Avon representative. Rachel seemed very happy, um, she was mad about him. They seemed to be a good match, the two of them were tall, they were into the same sports. Um, they seemed to have a very happy, normal kind of existence together. The Callaly family were, and still are, an extremely tight-knit group. Many of the boys, including Paul and his father Jim, work together in a plumbing business, where Paul still works today. On the 4th of October 2004, a group of them had gathered in their parents' house. Myself, Deck and Anthony were actually doing a bit of maintenance on my dad's house that day. It was a real autumnal day, like the sun was out, but like it was cool enough. Um, we were doing a bit of painting actually in his house and um, Mam made a fry up for the lot of us. And she was just in the process. We'd all just come into the kitchen. She was just finishing off the eggs, I think. And the first call came in. And um, God love her. She obviously got an instinct. Like at the start, I, you know, you know, the call was that Rachel didn't pick up the kids, which. Like, it was very, 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 very unusual to the point where it was hard to believe she would have forgot to pick them up. Um, so, like, we were in the kitchen and we were trying to calm me ma a little bit. Um, she just had an instinct now. Moments later, in the midst of panic, another call comes true from Joe. He sort of intimated that he'd go pick the kids up if, if we could kind of check on the house kind of thing. Me mad just immediately then just dropped everything and jumped in the car and drove, drove out to the house. The 4th of October 2004, at lunchtime, I was sitting at my desk after finishing a sandwich and having a cup of tea. I don't think I ever in my career took an hour's break for my lunch or took a, a, a coffee morning or anything like that. It's just the way I was and I was quite happy to do that. I just finished my sandwich and that, and one of the guys came and said, I think there's a burglary in progress in the Nall. And once you hear burglary in progress, you get the distinct impression that whoever rang it in or whatever could see it's in progress. It's the chances of catching them is high because they're probably not known they're being reported. Without wasting any time, Pack wraps the keys of his Ford Mondeo and heads on his way. And I remember going towards the Nall and uh, there was conflicting reports coming in on the radio. Now, it was obvious there was someone at the scene and they came in, this woman has been hurt. Another message came in, something like, you know, it looks like a burglary gone wrong. And uh, I was making my way to the Knoll 
to see could I intercept any car or you'd, you'd know criminals like you'd know them like you'd sniff them out like then it came in this this woman appears to be dead and I said my god straight to the scene I need to get straight to the scene Pat pulls up to the bungalow in Baldara and speaks to two guards cordoning off the front of the house. They said the woman, she's dead in there, it looks like a burglary or whatever. Like, and it's very important now that you preserve the scene properly and one of you is stay at the gate and let nobody in whatsoever. Take your notebook out and make a note of every car that passes, the make, model and reg number, what they're wearing, everything about them. Take as much detail in your notebook as you possibly can about everything and everyone around and that. When my mother rang back originally to say she thought Rachel was dead, um, obviously we just left then, myself and my dad just drove out. Um, we arrived at the house, Rachel's house, even though there was a front door, everyone went in the back way and went around the back, in through the kitchen, into the hall. And Rachel, God love her, was down to the right in her bedroom and um, just to the left then was a sitting room. and. We just walked in there. I went around the back of the house and my superintendent was there. There was a lot of noise coming from inside the house, inside in the kitchen, and the noise was people crying and wailing and distinct cry of grief, like from the people inside, like, you know. I said to the super, I have to get these people out, like to preserve the scene. And he says, fair enough. So I went in and I spoke to the family, which was Rose and uh, Jim, and there was some of the other family there. Mr. Callaghy, Jim, came up to me and I just said, look, I need to get you out of the house here because we have to preserve the scene here. To this day, Pat can't fully describe what he saw at that crime scene or the pain the Callaghy family went through in that moment. You'd have to witness it to understand it, like, but the grief that that man was going through, the, the pure hurt and pain, and he was shouting at me like, that's my daughter down there, she's dead, that's my daughter down there. And he was pointing his finger like, and as if blaming me, like his grief was, was really raw, like I'll never forget it, you know. Pat did his best to try and control the situation. And most importantly, preserve the scene. And at that stage, an ambulance had arrived just down from the gate. And I said, best to go down towards the ambulance. And they did, they went down to the ambulance and the ambulance staff were going to tend to them. Pat went to the back door, where his superintendent, Tom Gallagher, a straight-to-the-point Limerick man, was waiting for him. And he said, there's a woman dead in there. He said, tell me what you see. And uh, I was carrying the back of the detective cars of white suits and protective clothing, put that on, came in. Went into the house, had a look, into the kitchen. The first thing he noticed was that the curtains were drawn. Maybe, maybe not unusual. What was unusual was the table was overturned, like the kitchen table. Like it was not flat, but just like as if it turned over. Over the years, I had gone to hundreds, if not thousands, of burglaries. And I knew exactly when a burglary is a burglary. You know, a burglar doesn't do that type of thing. Why would he overturn a table, like, you know? Then there was kitchen drawers pulled open, and you can see knives and forks and all that, and the presses, cups and saucers and all that. Burglars don't do that type of thing, like. And I looked in the room to my left, and there was a, a cabinet where there was a telly and under the cabinet there were DVDs. They were pulled out and scattered round. Burglar doesn't do that. Pat made his way down the corridor, towards the last bedroom on the left, not knowing what sort of scene awaited him. I seen Rachel. Her head was to the left. She was lying on the saddleboard and her feet were and her body were into the room. Now, 
there was a lot of blood. Uh, but uh, I always remember her, her head was like a beetroot. There was so much red and blood and you couldn't see her face like her hair. But I do remember over her right ear there was a big slit. Uh, I don't know, it must have been six inches. And you could see down into her brain where she had been hit, like, you know. This wasn't the first murder scene Detective Murray had come across. In some ways, he'd become used to them. But there was something about Rachel's body and the extremity of the mess around her that stood out to him. So I noticed that and I looked and she was in a terrible state. She was viciously attacked. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As I always say, a scene always talks to you. You just have to listen. And... I stood there and looked and listened and took in what I could see and what it was saying to me. And I could see blood on the wall and blood on the ceiling, which is evident of something being swung with the blood on it. And um, But the interesting point that I noticed, it became very important in that uh, the blood splattering on the walls had dried and there was other blood splattering on top of it. Pat deducted, Rachel had been bludgeoned over the head with a blunt object. The two different splatterings told him that Rachel's attacker had returned after the initial attack and hit her again. I made my way outside then after viewing what I viewed and I know the superintendent was standing out there and I took a minute just to take a deep breath and have a look around and I could hear farm machinery in the distance and the birds singing and like just the normal country life and uh, well he says what did you see in there? Well I said I saw two things. And he says, what was that? I says, firstly, it's not a burglary anyway. Correct, he said. Now, the superintendent was Tom Gallagher, and he was a very experienced detective inspector in his day, and then was promoted superintendent. So he was a man with a lot of experience. So, yeah, he says, and he says, what else did you see? Well, I said, whoever killed this woman hated her, because I said there was a viciousness about the assault. He says, correct, he said. Go out and talk to the husband there, he's out of the front gate. <laughs> he was a bit odd now with interaction and stuff. He was never very good at, you know, talking to adults. I just thought he was kind of shy. It was easier playing with the kids and playing with, you know, talking to adults. Um, he wasn't great at looking you in the eye or anything. He just, I just thought it was part of his makeup. I went out and my first impression of Joe, he was six foot four, a big guy, like well built, you know, 
fine looking man like you know and uh, I went over to him and I shook hands with him and I told him who I was and I told him that uh, I, we'd be investigating this and we will get to the truth and we get to the bottom of it all right right he said grand you know he was calm enough like he wasn't down on his hands and knees crying his eyes out or shouting who did this or any of that type of carry on. Joe was keen to get back into the house. He had left his jacket back inside in the sitting room. I told him, you yeah, no way you're going back in there, you can't, I've seen this preserved. And uh, that was it, he, he mentioned that he was in there and he moved a box near the body and uh, he, sorry that we disturbed the scene or that. This wasn't anything that necessarily alarmed Pat. It was something he'd seen before in his career. A loved one is dead. The last thing on someone's mind is respecting the crime scene protocol. Pat told Joe he would need his phone number and needed to speak to him later on that day. So he gave me a phone number which I believed was his but actually it was Rachel's phone number he gave me. And that was strange to me, you know. And uh, But anyway, look, at, uh, I told him, specifically told him, I said, uh, don't talk to the media. Let us do our business and, you know, don't talk to the media. For Paul, many parts of that day remain vivid. I, I don't know why that stuck with me at that moment, but I just thought it was so odd. He didn't get up and talk to us or anything. He just sat there and it was, look, shock, blah, 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 maybe. But um, I just felt like my mother was not in a good place. And then my dad, God love him, kind of went into shock and he was shaking and stuff and um, Joe just never moved. Um, it's just something that stuck out me. I found it strange at the time that he was there standing on the road on his own. A lonely figure while all the Callalees were down at the ambulance. The ambulance people were putting the silver sheets around them like, you know, to keep them warm and just that they were in shock and uh, was attending to them and Joe was standing up the road away from them, I would have expected that he would have been down with the Callalee family, engaging in a, in a grief and trying to explain things and what happened. And But he wasn't. He was standing on his own, like as if, you know, he didn't want to be down near them. He said very little, but he listened intently. He wanted to know everybody's views and everybody's thoughts and what rumours. And, you know, he, he seemed... He didn't seem to offer anything himself. He just seemed to, you know, light the candle and then we'd all speak and he'd listen and, and he, you know, and he was intently and his brother as well, the two of them listened intently. But look, that's just, it's not a crime to stand on your own outside your house, like, you know, but I just found it in the circumstances he should have been down or would like to have been with the Callalees. Later that evening, a group of family and friends assembled in Rose and Jim's house in Whitehall, Dublin. As mourners often do, they try and keep the conversation going, trying to make some sense of the utterly senseless. The boys, um, like we kind of kept it together a bit at that stage. Like we, you know, there was a lot of people in the house, teas, coffees. Um, and I remember like I chatting to my uncles now at the table and the theories are starting and, you know, why was it done and what did they rob? And 
you know, would they have taken a credit card and maybe they'll use it and loads of different bits and bobs, you know, but um the only thing that stuck out with me that whole time that Joe didn't come back to our house was I just couldn't understand why he went to pick up the kids. You know, it was so unusual for Rachel to miss the kids to the point where it just never happened before. Um I put myself in that situation. I said, well, I would just go home. No school will throw kids out on the side of a street. So I would have gone home first, checked at home, make sure everything's okay. And then, you know, or even ring a parent or something where you pick up the kids. That night, Pat and two other guardie went to Joe's mother's house in Dunlear, where Joe was staying. Joe's mother showed them into the sitting room and called for Joe, who arrived in his bare feet, having just finished up in the shower. And he was sitting there as cool as a cucumber, really quite cool, like, you know. And the first question I asked him was, who killed Rachel? And can you think of any reason why she would have been killed like that? And he says, no. And this was the sort of the beginning of the, the little nucleus of, of how things developed. I says to him, like, you know, had she any enemies? No, 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 she had no enemies and she was well liked and all that. And I said, Grand, I says, well... Maybe she was having an affair, I said, and it's a disgruntled wife had someone do her in or... No, no, he said, neither of us were having affairs. And that's the skill of it, they tell you, you have to listen, listen to what's been said. I thought it's strange that here's a man bringing himself into the answer. When I didn't ask about him, I asked about Rachel. And it stuck with me and I sort of said to myself, hmm... You know, I just said, maybe there's something here. All very unconscious, like, but conscious within myself. Focused as ever, Pat took as many notes as he could, trying to fish out any details, no matter how small, that might help him with the case. I said, give me a breakdown of your movements for the day. So he said, yeah, I got up at five. Joe told Pat he leaves early each morning, which is why Rachel and him sleep in separate rooms going to bed. From there... Joe said he went to the gym in Clondalkin, where he met a friend and Viacom colleague, Derek Quarney. But he had made a pit stop in Finglas to pick up petrol along the way. Quarney and Joe sat in his car for 20 minutes, talking through the events of the day, before heading in for a workout, sauna and shower. From there, the pair headed to Bluebell Industrial Estate, to the Viacom office. They got in there around 7.30am, like, you know, so he said, that's what I did, and... Then uh, he says that morning, then about 8.30, myself and Derek were doing inspections in Broadstone. And I said, fine. I said, you're not leave together, no. I says, why wouldn't you go together? Why didn't you travel together? Oh, he says, uh, we can claim travelling expenses for both cars. Well, I said, well, surely you could claim the expenses even if you brought one car, like, you know. Anyway, I says, that's his excuse. Joe said he was in Broadstone Depot until about half eleven and arrived back in Bluebell Industrial Estate at around 12 o'clock. I said, who was in the depot with you? And he says, or who saw you in there? And he says, Derek Quarney was with me. And I said, that's grand. He had accounted for all his time and his movements, and that was it. So I asked him then, who do you think would have done this? And then he went on to say that he had sacked people from his work and had run-ins with people and this, that and the other. Nothing here seemed like a concrete link for Pat, although we would have to investigate each of these claims one by one. Again, Pat asked Joe to give him his phone number 
as they would need to keep in close contact with him. In the early days during the investigation, he gave me Rachel's number again. I said, hang on now, it says, that's Rachel's number you gave me. Oh, I thought you were looking for Rachel. No, I said, he gave me Rachel's number earlier on as well when I asked him. I said, I thought you asked for Rachel's. I said, no, I asked for yours. What's your number? Joe gave Pat his own number this time around, but Pat wanted to know, did he have it on his person that day? According to Joe, he did, and Pat made a note of it. A note that in time would prove crucial to the investigation. So they asked him again, I said, uh, you have an affair or did you have an affair, Joe? And he was looking at me, staring at me, and he says, no, I didn't have an affair, you know. But I just knew by him, by his eyes, and I just knew there's more here. Like I said to him then, I says, we need to get your shoes, I said, that you were wearing today in the house when you came to the house and discovered Rachel because we have discovered footprints and we need to eliminate footprints from the scene. Joe went upstairs to retrieve his shoes. And he was gone for a good 10 minutes. And I was saying to the lads, Jesus, is he going to buy a pair of shoes or what? But he came down and he wore a pair of boots and he says, these are the boots, these are the boots. So we put them in an evidence bag and that was it. And we said, thanks very much. And before we left, I looked him straight in the eye and moved real close to him. And I said, are you having an affair, Joe? And he looked at me and he stared at me like, you know. And he said, I did have an affair, but it's over now. And I said, who'd you have the affair with? And he said, a girl by the name of Nikki Pelly. Things were rocky between myself and Rachel, but things are fine now. I thought to myself, this man has lied to me. He's lied to me twice about the affair. Now he's admitting that he had an affair and that it was over and that uh, he didn't want his family to know. And I says, when was the last time you spoke with Nikki? And then he said, oh, I spoke to her today at 12 o'clock. Oh. Not one to wait around, Pat got in touch with Nikki that night, who confirmed they were having an affair. She was keen to play it down, though. It was just an affair. Just sex. Nothing else. So here's a guy who has lied to me, you know, and then like over the couple of days, we had got his incoming and outgoing calls to his phone, which was very evident because we established Nikki's phone number from herself. Pat could see that the pair were talking at 5.45 that morning, hours before Rachel's body would be discovered. So what were they talking for for 27 minutes like, you know? There was a text from Joe to her and then there was another phone call from Joe to her that lasted another 25 minutes or something like that, you know, later on. So here's a guy who again has lied to us. I was thinking, you can't believe this guy. He's telling lies. And why is he telling lies? If he was having an affair, why didn't he come out initially and says, yes, I'm in a relationship with someone else. And myself and Rachel were discussing going our own ways. But no, he was covering it up. Why would you cover something up? It was a motive, like, you know. Next time on The Making of a Detective. I'd love to say I I totally had it sus from day one. Like, you just don't want to believe it's him. So you really do give him an awful lot of leeway at the early days. Like, it's just, like, there was two young kids involved. Their mother's dead. You just hope that, God, it's not their father. And it was just a random act of madness by somebody and that they'll go on and live whatever sort of normality they'd have together. 
The making of a detective, The Cases of Pat Murray, was brought to you by The Irish Sun. This series is hosted and produced by me, Ian Doyle. For more information on the life and career of Pat Murray, check out his 2019 book, The Making of a Detective, by Penguin Books. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.